Well, welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Hello, folks. Today we are joined by Lieutenant Colonel Rasvi and Captain Koshel to discuss Air Force Rugby, the importance of nutritional aptitude, and how their fit-to-live mission is aiming to change airmen and guardians' health for the better. In three, two, one... Lieutenant Colonel Rasvi and Captain Koshell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. We're, we're very glad to be here. Thanks. Appreciate it. I have to say, when I met you, I kind of had a Ted Lasso moment because you both are involved in Air Force rugby, and I don't know any of the terminology, just like uh, when you took a, a football coach and put him on the pitch in England to coach some soccer people. He didn't know any of the terminology, so that's how I felt. Could you tell us a little bit about your involvement in Air Force rugby and maybe a couple of slang terms to get me up to date? Yeah, no, definitely. So uh, the, the biggest thing I would say, you know, going back to Ted Lasso, rugby is usually played in two halves. Uh, so it definitely takes place over that. So it depends on if you're talking about rugby sevens or rugby 15s. And what that means is that's talking about the number of players that are on the field. So traditionally, rugby is played with 15 players on both sides. But the actual Olympic sport is rugby sevens, which is the same size field, but you only have seven players on that field. And when we're talking about the field or the pitch, it is 110 meters long and usually 50, at least 50 meters wide. So it is very large. It is larger than a standard American football field. But yeah, no, rugby's been around for a really long time. It's been around since 1823. As legend has it, they were actually playing uh, what we call soccer football at that time. And someone actually picked up the soccer ball and started running. And that's, that's as legend has it, how rugby began. And it kind of developed further on from there. American football, at least the NFL, was established in 1920. So there's a lot of development in rugby before that. And for example, some of the terms, you have some terms in there as well uh, that come from rugby, which is in American football, you have a touchdown is how you score. It actually comes from rugby because when you score in rugby, you actually go past the try line and touch it down at the end, and that's actually how you score. But it was called a try, because back in the day when rugby first started, you actually got zero points for an actual score, for actually touching the ball down. And then you got to try and attempt to kick through the post to actually score. So a little different there, but definitely a very fast, uh, fast-moving and evolving game, a continuous sport um, that's uh, kind of attracted and attracted us to it. And uh, that's actually how I met Mitch. Yeah. So, so a couple aspects of rugby that most people wouldn't know, uh, most Americans that are, that are used to just football, um, they, they see that sometimes there's stoppage in play, which is fairly unusual in rugby, but there are stoppages when those happen, most likely because of a penalty. And so probably the most, um, the most notable thing from rugby that uh, people remember are the, what's called a scrum. There's about eight guys from each side, usually the big guys, and they're all in a very coordinated way coming together and pushing against each other. And so the goal is to push the other side a little bit backwards so that when they roll the ball in the middle, the ball goes to your side, you can pick it up and start playing. And so rugby is that type of continuous game where it, it, it could be going for 20 minutes straight, no stoppages. If the ball goes out of bounds, you may have also seen 
where they lift a guy up. They lift him up 15 feet in the air and they throw the ball to him. That's another way that you can uh, get them back from a penalty or just going out of bounds. So those are some, some of the different aspects of rugby that, that really make it unique. It's difficult to learn those uh, if you're not familiar with them and it takes a little bit of time, but it does uh, really make the sport fun. One notable point that uh, makes rugby different from most American sports is the interactions with the referee, who we call the sir. And you call him the sir because you give that person the utmost respect, regardless of what the call is. If the call is against you, it doesn't matter. You call them sir, and you have to abide by whatever that call is. It's very different from American sports, where it's pretty common to argue with the referee. And so respect is, is crucial in, in rugby, both with the sir and with the opponent. I think that's an aspect that drew us to rugby, where it, it's, it's very different, and you have that respect just with everybody on the field. So that's a great point there that you made, this idea of like the respect, that constant motion, the camaraderie and teamwork. Uh, we're definitely going to come back to it, but I think it's important first, now that we have an idea of what rugby is all about, how you both connected with the Air Force and eventually with the Air Force rugby team. So starting over with you then, Lieutenant Colonel Razvi, what originally drew you to the Air Force and what was your first assignment when you started? Yeah, no, definitely. So I've been in the Air Force now for about 14 years. I actually got had my undergraduate degree in philosophy. Of course, couldn't do much with that. So it's either get my PhD or go to law school. I chose to go to law school. And uh, while I was there at what's now Texas A&M Law School, I applied for the two-year graduate law program to get into the JAG Corps. And my first duty station was at Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri. That was interesting to me. I grew up for the most part in Texas. So going to Missouri and an actual winter climate in seasons was a little bit different for me, but but it was a great base. It was a it was a great experience. Um, it actually deployed to Iraq from there and was prosecuting detainees as well at the Central Criminal Court of Iraq. But I've done a, a various number of jobs from being a chief of military justice to disability counsel, to a medical law consultant, to a deputy staff judge advocate, to being the legal advisor at the Security Forces Center, now here being the staff judge advocate for the 7-Eleven Human Performance Wing. And I'll deploy to Afghanistan as well doing contract and fiscal law. So I've done a lot of very different legal jobs in the realm of Air Force and a lot of different commands, but it's all been kind of a mix of military justice, a little bit of medical law and civil law and ethics is, is really what we cover. But it's been it's been a great ride so far, and I'm looking forward to the rest of my career. And before we go to Captain Cashel's side, I, I'm interested. So you mentioned a lot of, I mean, you've done a lot. <laughs> that, that is an amazing career to span so many different titles. Uh, but for those who may be curious, myself included, why would we need, especially at the 7-11, the medical law team? Like, what does your team exactly do, or why is that role necessary? So... I'm more of a general counsel for the wing. What I do is I provide not only medical law advice for maybe uh, human subjects research or animal research, but really anything that they need assistance on, whether it be formed in agreement, a partnership with an outside organization or entity, evaluation of intellectual property, maybe agreements, terms and conditions for some software that we want to license and take on. Um, or maybe it's just off-duty employment or general ethics for an individual that wants to start up an outside business or take on another job with, a, with another business, then I would be able to help them navigate those kind of ethics 
rules and regulations there. I think it's important. I think everyone would agree that it's an important piece of the puzzle that if you're trying to navigate through all the laws and regulations without an attorney, it, it can be very difficult. Even I, reading some of the congressional bills, you know, legislations, Appropriations Act, and things like that that come out, it's very difficult to get through. And I, I think it's very important to have someone within the JAG Corps, uh, a legal advisor, to assist you to help you navigate that. And that's really what I think my position is about, is that I'm really not a door to tell you, no, you can't do that. It's more of a window to show you the different pathways you can go to actually get there, to get either the piece of equipment you want, to get the piece of technology you want, to establish the agreement you want. That's really how I see this position. And I think with a you know a very simple example you've you've given us in the past is that something as commonplace as like a fitness tracker or something that tracks our biometrics, there's rules behind it of how licenses of how you use that and use the data and aggregate it probably. So that matters to our researchers and they need legal support so they don't spend all their time figuring out how they can use a technology. They can offload that to that you as an expert, a legal expert, and then they can get back to the science and everyone can move forward with the mission. So that's one example that really stuck out to me. Definitely, especially with terms and conditions, of course, if you purchase anything that's off the shelf, commercial off the shelf item or anything like that, any piece of technology like the wearable device that, that I'm wearing right now, it's going to come with those terms and conditions and the, and the license. And of course, as a government employee, there are certain rules and regulations that you have to follow if you are going to purchase those items. And our listeners might be wondering, gosh, we just talked about rugby and now we're talking about law. And then we're going to have put another little piece of the puzzle together. We promise yeah. it's coming with Captain Koshel. <laughs> you do play rugby, but you don't study law. So what do you do within uh, the Air Force Research Laboratory? And then we're going to pull this all together. Yeah, it's really hard to follow up a, a career list like that. But I, I went to the Air Force Academy, and that's where I started playing rugby. I played there all four years, and that's kind of where my love for the game started. My first assignment was at the Naval Air Station Patuxent River, where I was a program manager on the B-22 Osprey. So I worked at that program office for, for a little while, really enjoyed getting into the contract and acquisition side of the Air Force. I came to AFRL, to the 7-11th Human Performance Wing, and I'm working in the Warfighter Interactions and Readiness Division as an Acquisition Program Manager on a research program. So I actually met Lieutenant Colonel Rosby in the summer of 2018, where I played with the Air Force rugby team. He was coaching, and he was the officer in charge. So that's where kind of our relationship started. Later that year, I was diagnosed with leukemia, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And I went through about 10 months of intensive chemotherapy, and then another year and a half of continued treatment. Um, and so I finished up treatment uh, in the spring of 2021. I've been very healthy since and no complaints. Uh, I also was helping Lieutenant Colonel Rosby with the Air Force rugby team during my treatments so that I could stay involved with the team. That was really important to me to stay involved with the team and to be able to help those guys develop as, as airmen and as uh, rugby players. In that intense part of your life where you you went probably from the best shape of your life to literally having poison and treatment put in your body to make it healthier again. What was that like for you? It was really difficult because I, at that point, was probably in some of the best shape of my life playing rugby. And then that hits you and you literally are not able to do anything. You're sick most of the time. And so it was very difficult. I had to really adjust the way I lived and, and 
a, a part of that that I found was extremely beneficial was doing the little things right by eating a little bit cleaner, possibly when, when I was sick and I couldn't work out, but I could go for a walk for 10 minutes and getting a little bit more sleep. Just little things like that really made a huge difference. I mean, I was surrounded by the best medical staff at Walter Reed that I could have been, but I did find that doing the, those little things right really made me feel better. And I think it did probably help throughout those uh, intensive months. And, and if I could just add, in, when he played at Armed Forces, I mean, he was one of our speed guys on the team. He made every tackle. Any size guy that would run out would run down the field, he'd be able to take them down. And he was a huge backbone of our team. And that's an, another reason why we wanted to also bring them back. But the biggest thing I would say, you know, going back to the difference between rugby and other sports, is that we definitely see ourselves as more of a family. Even though you're not in season or not in a camp or tournament, we're still connected. We're always staying connected to one another. And we're not going to let you fall off the radar just because something else is going on. I mean, we're definitely going to keep you involved. And, and we want to keep you involved because everybody has something to offer, even off the pitch, to the team. So you both have this sense of family and the sense of drive and Captain Koshel, you go through this really difficult period of your life, but you, you found uh, motivations in yourself to, to do things to make your body stronger, whether it was that walk or it was making the choice to eat something healthy instead of some mac and cheese comfort food or something like that, which I still hope you treated yourself to. But a thread that you both have and, and, and an idea that you brought up is something you dubbed fit to live. And that's really why we're here today, because you have this message to share with our listeners. Uh, what is fit to live and why is it so critical to both Air Force, Space Force mission, as well as something that our everyday listeners can incorporate into their lives? Yeah, definitely. So I think we always focus on this idea of, of fit to fight. And of course, in every leadership philosophy, they talk about people and how people are always the most important. You can see it in all of our strategy documents and everything like that. The main focus is always on people. Well, if we're not just fit to fight, we also have to be fit to live. And that goes beyond just your regular duties, either as a military member, federal employee, you have to be fit to live. So that's really all facets of your life, talking about what you're eating, how your sleep is going, how you're feeling, do you really understand your body? And maybe you've never taken classes on caloric intake or understand, you know, the macro amounts that you should be eating. Maybe you've never talked to a professional on that. And of course, I'm an attorney. I am definitely not an expert in these fields, but I have been around very uh, elite, elite coaching staff and strength and conditioning coaches and gone through our own research at AFRL as well within the Strong Lab. And that's also taught me a lot of things. So it's, it's a lot about education as well as practicing what you learned. Of course, we always talk about training. If we're going to learn something, we're going to, we're going to train up so we can understand that. But sometimes we say fitness is your own personal responsibility. You know, your own health is your own personal responsibility. And maybe you, in school, you learned about that nice food pyramid, but that food pyramid 
is not going to make you fit to live. It's not going to make you fit to fight. There's more to it. There's more out there, and the DOD has more resources and availability that we can give to each individual military member and employee. So I've heard it put before, and I'm sure the ratio is not exactly this, but um, when somebody's trying to be fit to live or be in shape, I've heard like, you know, like 70% of the kitchen, 30% is like what you put in with the workouts. Very important what you put in you. So kind of following that thread then, what could we do to help support things like this or help airmen or other guardians or people looking to be healthier do that or seek out information to find what they should be taking in? At AFRL, I, I think we do some really good research on improving human performance. And because of that, there's, there's a lot of data out there that we can make known to our, our airmen, our guardians, and to our warfighters. There, there may be a gap where we do the research and we find some really useful data, but actually applying that to our airmen on a day-to-day basis, making sure they are aware of it and that the programs we have are adapted to actually help them, I think is where we could we could improve. Yeah, definitely. And if I could just comment on that, it's more of that connection between the research realm and the operational realm. And there's definitely, there's a lot of studies out there that talk about how they can take a DFAC at a military installation and then they can shape it so they can optimize it for a soldier, airman, guardian, what have you. There's also a lot of research and survey data from individuals on the idea of what is it on a military installation food-wise that attracts you to it or repels you. I would say in most it's the latter because of the lack of grab-and-go options, healthy options, especially for lifestyle. And there's different lifestyles within every AFSC, right? And within every different employee's duties. Of course, an attorney who's sitting in the office is gonna be very different from a security forces member, a someone that's special ops, it's gonna be very different. So we need to cater to those. And, and the big thing about the research too, is that we always find out these research studies all show that if you apply the education and the resources to the member, you're going to get the results. So we find that out, but yet on the back end, we don't act on that research. We, we don't follow through, we don't have the other you know, modifications to the defect. We don't have the other modifications within our workout structure. We don't have those other modifications and support systems that the research is, is showing us. And going through, again, through the, through the Strong Lab, the research protocols and, and everything. I mean, I know, I know it helps being 40, going on 41 now, and I'm still able to run around with high school rugby kids that, you know, that I'm coaching and still keep up. I mean, that's an important point to make. Like you mentioned that uh, the research could be in place, the work at the strong lab, everything that's going to prove that these individualized lessons, whether they be for workout regimens, uh, nutritional regimens, whatever, it makes a huge, huge impact. So moving that a step further, then are there any systems or support systems within the DOD that airmen and guardians can access or ways that you give people access to this or what we need to make these more accessible? At every installation, every fitness center, there's usually going to be some form of a dietitian or maybe a bod pod or something like that, that you can utilize. Of course, that is reliance on the member. And I think that's, that's a big part of what we were talking about with this fitness concept is that most of this is reliance on the member going out and seeking those resources, whether it be from your provider at your installation 
from the dietitian at the fitness center or going and doing that, sitting in the bod pod, getting your body fat percentage, even if it isn't what you like, you still have it. But the interesting thing about that is that that sheet also points out calories. It, it may be, not be the most accurate, but it gives you a starting point. And, that, and that's really what it is, is getting the education, finding the starting point because everybody's different. I think an important point to make is that we're not trying to suggest that everyone needs to be fit enough to play rugby. What we think are there are resources out there that can that can help each individual airman, guardian, government employee, contractor that can can make them a little bit healthier and can help them perform at their job better. They don't need to become an athlete, but it may help Lieutenant Colonel Rosby perform better as a lawyer because he got better sleep and so his brain's functioning a little bit better. So I think there are incremental improvements that can be made with everybody and it would really benefit the Air Force, Space Force as a whole. That is fantastic. And the next question I have is going to center more around diets. Uh, with how variable they can be, whether it be for airmen or people out in the public, how are you keeping up with that? One, and two, do you have any plans to embed dietitians or even put specific kitchens in for units uh, to help better adhere to whatever diets they may need? Let's start with Lieutenant Colonel Rasby. Of course, we can't put kitchens in every unit. That would be great, but I know there would still need to be a central point, but I think it's really those grab-and-go healthy options there's a lot of different diets out there, right? It seems like every couple months there's a, you know, a different fad in regards to carbs are good, carbs are bad now, or you just concentrate on high fat foods, uh, whether it's keto or vegan or vegetarian. I mean, and there's so much information out there. And that's another piece of it is distilling all of that information and getting it to the members. So they have that information, right? If they're looking for supplements, do we have that information readily available to them where they can get those resources? Because we all know a lot of people go into GNC on base or whatever, and maybe that supplement isn't lab tested. Maybe they don't have that information, but they're just, if they need protein. And yes, your body definitely needs protein to function. And so they're going to use that as some sort of meal replacement or something like that. So I think there's a lot of aspects that we can do in the base structure to really get into those support elements as well as education and information, especially when it comes to all the information that's out there on the internet, all the information that you may be getting from a wearable device. How do you interpret that? Why is it good? Why is it necessary? Is it even necessary? Or if you have one and can have that information, how do you actually utilize that so you can practice this fit to live concept and you can be ready to tackle whatever your kids throw at you, whatever they want to do sports-wise on the weekend, whatever your job throws at you, whatever stressful situation brings on, you're going to be in that state where you can handle that and you're better equipped to handle it. Your ideas here remind me a little bit of a conversation we had with Lindsay Buckaloo that's in the 7-Eleventh Human Performance Wing and, and the work that the wing is doing around operational support teams where we might embed a physical therapist or a coach or psychologist, you know, to take care of this whole of person. Being a desk worker, you know, my stretches are way different than if someone's out there uh, changing an aircraft tire <laughs> in a very simplistic way. So for our listeners, if you haven't listened to uh, Mr. Buckaloo's podcast, I suggest you check that one out. It's, it's got a napping in the title. It's, it's a fun episode. So Fit to Live is also a recruiting tool for you guys, both of you, as you as you continue to coach, right? 
hey, if it works, it works. If somebody's fit and they want to come out and play, which, of course, I would gladly accept them, and they can definitely contact me, and we can set them up. So, yes, I would say I think it's a roadmap to open up to, to all sports. But, of course, I know uh, we have a – rugby has a special place with us. I've been around both the state and women's rugby team and the there's also a men's team. And I will say some of those people are a little intimidating. So I don't know if you have any advice for the everyday person that is looking to get involved in, in rugby. I totally understand where you're coming from. The, the first time I went down to a rugby pitch, I was a freshman in college, probably 150 pounds. And I saw some big guys and I was very intimidated. But you know what? It, it, it really is a sport that anybody can play. And if you have a little bit of courage and you're not scared to uh, step in front of somebody and you have the right form, it's really not as dangerous as people think. And it's really fun. And there's a place for everyone. There's really big guys on the field and there's really small guys. Um, we have a guy on the team that's 5'4", 140 pounds, and he will hang in there with the best of them. So there really is a place for everyone. Well, I'd like to thank you guys for joining us today and maybe some of our listeners or Ken will actually see you on the pitch. Uh, I, I think I've got some work to do. <laughs> well, thank you for having us. We really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, pre- appreciate it. Of course, any questions or comments, you can always contact us. If you, if you have something you want to come out and enjoy a rugby game, rugby practice, or have questions about Air Force rugby, please contact us. Always happy to help and definitely appreciate you giving us the opportunity to speak to you today on these topics. Make sure to follow us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And remember, stay curious. Logging off.